I want to read to you this morning from God's Word in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. God's Word says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for, again, your grace and mercy. We thank you for Jesus, who has connected us through his blood as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. And we cry out to you this morning that you would bless this time that we have of gathering together around your word, God, that you would edify us through your word, that you would stir us up towards Christ's likeness through the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus and our great example of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name, all of God's people said, amen. Paul's train of thought, we've been in chapter two for a few weeks now. Paul's train of thought continues in today's sermon on Christian character. We're going to talk about godly character within followers of Jesus. Uh, In chapter two, Uh, Paul has set Jesus as the example of Christian humility. If you remember the beginning part of chapter 2, the example of Christian humility and living. He's encouraged the Philippians in last week's sermon. He encouraged them, if you'll remember this phrase, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And now sets forth as an example for us, Timothy, his disciple, and Epaphroditus, the messenger and minister sent to encourage Paul as examples of upright Christian character. This brings us to our, our main idea this morning is this. Timothy and Epaphroditus illustrate upright character and they are examples to be followed. Okay, in a sense they are mentors to us as followers of Jesus. This this passage is really interesting. It's more akin to kind of an end greeting. It reminds me of Paul giving out kind of the last minute details uh, before he closes out a letter and yet Paul places this right in the midst of his train of thought toward growth in Christ likeness. Does anyone remember last week the word that we used for growing in Christ likeness? If you remember the word, go ahead and shout it out. Sanctification. Good job. Sanctification, right? We, we could easily have done this with this passage. We could easily have just tagged this on the last week's sermon or glanced past it, moving on to chapter 3. But what I want to do when I was going through and praying and seeking the Lord, breaking down the passages to preach through these a few months ago, uh, I just couldn't 
lump this passage in with another one. I couldn't glance past it because I felt led by the Lord that we were to mine deeper into what Paul is teaching us in this passage to see really the gold that the Lord has for us. And the gold in this passage is this. It's the godly example of Timothy and Epaphroditus and their upright character. Okay, I want to define for you what character is. What is character when we use that word? I think pastor and author A.W. Tozer explains character well, and he says it simply this way, quote, the excellence of moral beings. The excellence of moral beings is good character, okay? Here's my down-home simple definition of character as it relates to Timothy and Epaphroditus, is that they are, here's, here's my definition of good character. They're good dudes doing good things, all right? Timothy and Epaphroditus are good dudes doing good things. They supported Paul. They listened. They encouraged. They ministered. They worked hard. They strived to be like Jesus in the middle of a dark world, in a very dark world, in a very dark time. These are the types of guys, right? If you're going to go fight a battle, if you're going to climb the mountain, these are the guys that you want to have next to you when you're ascending that hill, when you're going through a tough time. Romans 5, 1 to 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, when we use that word justified, we mean the declaration by our Lord that we are not guilty of our sins through his blood. Since we have been justified by faith, we have this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Right? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces in endurance. Here it is. And endurance produces character. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about character. C- character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Such an encouraging passage of Scripture. These men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are documented as ones who have placed their faith in Jesus, thus securing peace with God, right? They have peace with God through Jesus. They have rejoiced and wrestled through suffering and illness, which has helped grow their endurance. I'll use this word, their stick right? They're sticking to the path. They're walking with God, which is noted in Romans as this, as producing character. These are men of good character. These men are examples for us to grow toward. This is the wisdom of scripture, right? Christianity, we know this. It's not a solo sport. It's not something we do on our own. We, we belong to a team. We belong to a family. And the Lord has made us in this way. It's, way. it's a way actually that we image the Trinity, okay? God has been in an eternal relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are made in the image of God. So therefore, we desire to be in community as God is in community, God has made us this way, that we grow in community together. Timothy and and Epaphroditus convey the importance of godly examples and mentors in our lives as we disciple one another, help each other grow in Christ-likeness toward the example of our Savior Jesus. The church is still structured in this way. Paul gives us instructions in Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, when he says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, hear this, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give them? He tells us to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Do you know who the saints are, church? 
It's all of us. You're a saint. Did you know that? You didn't need the Roman Catholic Church to make you a saint. You're a saint through the blood of Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ or the church until we, we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, we could say womanhood also, ladies, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We are designed, family, to be mentored and to mentor others as we grow in the fullness of Christ. And this begins with our connection to one another through the blood of Jesus. We are connected through the blood of Jesus. We are blood-bought members of the family of God. So I can call somebody a brother, a brother Isaac that came up and shared with us who lives halfway around the globe. We're not brothers by blood, are we? But we're brothers by the blood of Jesus. And this is where we're going to begin this sermon. We are family. We're family. It's where Paul begins. I want to, I'm going to give you some bad news this morning. We are in dark times. Dark days are ahead. The, the, the question is, who can you trust? Who do you have next to you? Who do you want to charge the mountain with? Your family, right? The people you trust. That's who I can trust. As far as I know, Paul has absolutely zero generational or family lineage to Timothy or Epaphroditus, yet he calls Timothy what? His son and Epaphroditus his brother. Why? They're family through the work of Christ. Philippians uh, 2.22, we're going to hang around a lot in verse 25 this morning. It says this, But you know Timothy's proven worth, here it is, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I have thought it necessary, now he's going to talk about Epaphroditus, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, here it is, my what? Brother. Right? This is my family. We're, We're reminded here of the beautiful Christian doctrine of adoption. Pastor Aaron Minikoff says it this way, quote, Adoption is the gracious act of God wherein he makes justified sinners his beloved children. We are the children of God. He goes further, quoting, To be adopted is to receive God's name. That's why we're called Christians, right? We have the name of Christ on us. And to have access, this is awesome, To have access to God's throne, his pity, his protection, his provision, his discipline, and his promise, hear this, to never abandon us. I would add to this that we also have a great and lasting eternal family with each other as the people of God. In a sense, when we gather as a church, we are practicing for eternity. The time where we will stand in the glory of God for all of eternity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Jesus is called our friend and our what? Brother. God is our Father. 
Paul exhorts the church because of our adoption in Romans 8.15. He says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? To fall back into sin, to fall back into wickedness, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons. We could also say and daughters, ladies. By whom we cry, listen to this title, Abba, Father. Okay, Dad. When I address my dad, I don't say, Hey, Father, how are you doing? What do I say? Dad, right? Pop. It's a, it's a term of affection. We have that same relationship with God through Christ that we can call God the Father, Dad. Dad, I come to you. Because of our adoption into the family of God, we are to take on the character of God that is exemplified first in his son Jesus and in his followers. And we have two of them that we're looking to in this passage, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So now we're going to get into these Christian characteristics that they have. Our second point is this. They are selfless. They are selfless men. That is a, a quality of a follower of Jesus is that we are selfless. The question is this, are you more concerned for yourself or your brother or sister? In the Christian life, we can say this, it's not all about you. Verses 20 to 21, then we'll look at verse 26. Paul says this through through the Spirit of God. He says, for I have no one like him, he's speaking to Timothy here, who will be genuinely, hear this, how selfless he is, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, right? For your well-being, for your goodness. And now Paul's going to contrast here Timothy's example with the selfish leaders of the day. He says, for all the rest of the guys, basically, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Then he talks about Epaphroditus later. For he, that's Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you, you heard that he was ill. He had gotten sick on the way to go visit Paul. Right? And, and all that Epaphroditus has been through, a long journey to go visit Paul, illness, sickness, and his thoughts in the midst of that are geared toward the weight of the church back home. Here's the reality. This man has traveled, as far as we know, on foot from Philippi to go visit Paul in prison to encourage him from the church. Okay? And so news somehow has gotten back to the church that their beloved brother Epaphroditus is sick. Okay, here's the thing. They didn't have the interwebs back then, right? information traveled slowly. They had, it seems as though they had heard that he's ill, but they don't know what the outcome is. And Epaphroditus is, he's upset because he wants his people to know that he's okay. He's a selfless man, right? Even in the midst of being sick, he wants them to understand. The heart of these men has been transformed by the power and spirit of God most high. And as a result, they are, they are doing this. They're putting to death their old selfish ways, and replacing selfishness with this, selflessness. They're replacing selfishness with selflessness. This is a distinctive mark of Christian character, that we put others above and before ourselves, or our self-interest. And, and this is, in Western culture, this is deeply countercultural to who we are in America, where we are encouraged and lauded, we're celebrated for our selfishness in this land. How do we know that? Because we have slogans and phrases like this, follow your heart, you do you, be your authentic self, whatever that means, live your truth, or if it makes you happy, do it. What is that all about? Me, right? It's all about me. 
That's what's celebrated in the West. And yet counterculturally, in the upside-down kingdom of God, God calls us to be people that are selfless, that we put others before ourselves. Jesus would say we, we love others as ourselves. The result of selfless living is of great benefit to our brothers and sisters in Christ and sets us apart as lights in the world. Can you imagine if we all lived this way? If we put others above ourselves, the question is, do you consider others before yourself? Number three, we see this. They're workers. It's a mark of Christian character that you work, that you're laboring. The question is this, are you ready to get to work? Verse 25 we're going to break, and we're just going to sit in this verse. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, right? My family, and fellow what? Worker. He's a worker for Jesus. This is what Epaphroditus did. He was sent by his church on a long journey to go and take news to an imprisoned Paul. Remember, right? That's the context of the letter. Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel and to encourage him with all the Lord was doing in Philippi and also to bring the Lord's provision or or financial blessing or food to bless Paul physically. That's work, isn't it, right? To walk somewhere, to deliver this news. And then on the way, Epaphroditus fell ill, and yet he didn't let his illness keep him from the work that the Lord called him to. Did you hear that? He didn't let anything get in the way of the Lord's work for him. The Bible describes workers in this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building, right? In other words, we all have different giftings that we bring to the table. Here's the reality for all of us. Hear this truth. There is no retirement in the Christian life. We don't get to hang up the work and relax for a season and finish out our days. There's no retirement. We are designed to work. Oftentimes we attribute work to the fall of humanity in in Genesis 1 to 3. But here's the reality. God created Adam and Eve in his image And he placed them in the garden to what? To tend to it. That's work, isn't it? Even before they fell into sin, they had to work. There's no retirement for us. We're designed to work. And this applies practically in our everyday living. We should be workers, whatever that looks like in your life and context. And also in our spiritual lives, we should be laboring for the causes of Christ, for the the cause of growing in Christ's likeness ourselves, and helping others to be built up in Christ, working for the mission of Jesus. And, And the Lord has done this for us. The Lord has entrusted, gifted us with the power of his spirit dwelling within us. That's amazing and mind blowing in and of itself. And because of the Spirit of God, we've been gifted with what we would call spiritual gifts of varying kinds to do this. Uh, The Bible teaches us to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church, to work together to glorify God. The question is, how are you using your gifting to work for the Lord? All of us have been equipped in this way to, to offer our gifting for the work of Jesus. We get this this view into the life of Christ and the heart of Jesus and his mission 
for the lost in Matthew 9, 36 to 38. The scriptures say this, when, when he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, he had compassion for them. There's so many lessons just right there in that phrase for us to draw from. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, right? They're just wandering in the wilderness. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What's another word that we can use for labor, right? The workers, the workers are few. And what's Jesus' instruction? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God, would you give us more workers, more laborers? We need more help to do your mission. In these dark and trying times, we need laborers, workers for God. Okay, here's the reality in the, in the church in America. The time for consuming has passed. It's time to get to work. Who's ready to get to work for God's kingdom? Pray earnestly that the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest. We need workers. Number four, a mark of, a Christian, of Christian character is that we're soldiers. We are soldiers for Jesus. Are you ready to fight the good fight of faith? Here's the reality. We're going into battle. We're going into battle. Verse 25 again and and into verse 30. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and here it is, fellow what? Soldier. And look at this in verse 30. We see a mark of a good soldier here. It says this, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, right? I want to be a soldier like that. When men go into battle, they want a guy next to them that's willing to die for them. That's what Epaphroditus embodied. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now here, I want to I explain that statement. It seems like the Philippian church is not doing what they're supposed to do. Here's the reality. They couldn't all come and minister to Paul, so they sent a representative to do it for them. That's Epaphroditus. In church sermons, here's the reality. We often desire to be stirred up emotionally, emotionally to have a spiritual experience, to be encouraged and uplifted. I want to smile when I leave church. These are good things. However, we must also wrestle with the dark reality that we are at war with spiritual darkness in the world. We have to wake up. There is evil that oppresses and seeks to thwart and destroy God's kingdom and his church. We're not playing church here. We are the church. Paul tells us this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what we face, church. So do you want your ears tickled or do you want to be built up and ready to fight the battles that the Lord has laid out before you? There is a battle being waged for your soul at this very moment. There's a battle to topple all that the Lord is doing in the kingdom of God around the world. And there's a battle in the local expression of God's kingdom here at North Bullet. There's a spiritual battle going on right now. 
And the battle is sneaky. The enemy is deceptive. He lulls you in through contentment that leads to laziness. He takes your eye off the mission through creeping selfishness, which devours our soul towards self-centered living. Don't let the enemy defeat you and overcome you. We must battle side by side through the means that the Lord has chosen to restrain evil in the world. Paul exhorts Timothy in this manner. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He says pursue, right? He's going to give the instructions. Soldier, this is how we fight. This is what Paul's giving. Timothy's mentor, Timothy's example. He says pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. What does that mean, right? Hold the line. I love the movie. I know it's a little bloody, but I love the old movie Braveheart. Okay? And, and he's set up, and they got these big old posts, these big spikes, and the enemy's advancing in them. What does he keep saying? Hold, hold, don't move. Hold the line. And gentleness at the end of that. <laughs> kind of competing images there. (laughs) Fight the good fight of faith, right? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we battle together taking on the whole armor of God. The belt of truth fastened tight. The breastplate of righteousness protecting our heart. The shoes of gospel readiness holding up the shield of faith. What does that mean? That we truly believe that God is the victor. What do we mean by that when we say God is the victor? God has won the ultimate battle. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He has won the cosmic battle being waged in this very moment. We walk in light of his victory. We wear the helmet of salvation and we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul tells us praying at all times in the Spirit, alert with perseverance, right? Endurance. We keep going, striving towards the Lord and all that we say and do. And lastly, mark of godly Christian character is that we are encouragers and we're all ministers. Again, the the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we all carry this title of encourager and minister within the church. Are, Are you walking in light of the equipping granted to you to be encouragers and ministers to one another? Finishing out the passage. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, right? Grief on top of grief. I'm more eager to send, to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, right? That they may rejoice in seeing their brother, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. I love this. Honor such men. 
Honor him as he returns to you. Family, the, the elders and the leaders, we can't do it on our own. Where, where are the Timothys and the Epaphroditus's? Each and every one of you have been called to encourage and minister to one another, to uplift each other. What does that look like? If you have a brother or sister wallowing in the grip of unrepentant sin, the idea is not to run to the pastor or the elder and tell on them, but to encourage them. To encourage and minister to them. You who has a relationship with them, to encourage and minister to them, to repent and follow after Jesus. If you have a brother or sister repeatedly swimming in the waters of self-pity, encourage and minister them to be strengthened and stand in the power of God again, not in the demise of perpetual victimhood. See, in America, we wear being victims as a badge of honor. And we shouldn't. As Christians, we got to stand in the power of God that we have. The living God lives inside of you. If you have a brother or sister who's in the throes of bitterness, encourage them towards forgiveness and mercy and grace. If you have a brother or sister who's immature in their faith, encourage and minister uh, them toward the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, right? Grow in your faith. We don't stay babies, right? Babies are cute when they're little. But, but you get a 10-year-old that's acting like a baby, it's not cute anymore, is it? No, there's an expectation that you grow up. We want to encourage and minister those who are immature in their faith. Again, toward the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And here it is, ultimately the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul began this section by giving us the beautiful Christ hymn that I'm going to read to you today. Philippians 2, this isn't in your notes. If you want to turn back in your Bible a little bit to 2, 4 to 11. Paul presents the gospel to these Philippian Christians to encourage them. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others, right? That we're, we're selfless people. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who though he, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is what he did. But, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here, here's the thing. This is what God did in Jesus. God left his, his position of, of power and glory and took on human form. He took on flesh and blood. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He became a baby. How humbling is that? A baby that couldn't function on its own. God took on flesh and came in the form of a baby. And grew up and matured and learned. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, right? He didn't just stay a baby. He grew up into a man living perfectly. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. Every single word. He says, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
We hear a lot of times in our lives, and, and, and sometimes I, I take on this attitude, something happens, and I, what do I say? That's not fair. You know, it's not fair that Jesus in his perfection was nailed to a cross and whipped. We, we like to clean it up. We, we put a little, a little thing around his midsection. Jesus was nailed to the cross naked and ashamed. Stripped bare for all. How, in, how humiliating for our sin. And he shed his blood. Took on the punishment that we deserved. What does God do? Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, hear this, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe this? It brings us to our closing questions. Who do you look to and who is looking to you? Who do you look to? You can jot these down in your notes. Who do you look to? Number one, you got to look to Jesus. We have to remember this beautiful Christ hymn here. We need Jesus. On our own, we are depraved. What does that mean? We are sinful. In our original state, we are in open rebellion against God. We need the righteousness of another. We need a new nature. And God in his loving kindness has given us his spirit to open our eyes, to see our need for salvation in Jesus so that we can place our faith, our trust, and confidence in him and be made new. We are new creations in Christ. We need to look to Jesus first. We need to trust and place our faith and confidence in him. Live for him. Who do you look to? Our only hope is Jesus. The next thing, who do you look to? Family, you got to get in church. I know he's like, oh, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say that. You need the church. You need to find a church. You need to invest in a church. You need to stay in a church. Be a part of it. Every part of your life connected with other believers who care about you and love you and want to see you built up. And lastly, you need to be discipled by godly mentors. I thank God. I'm, I'm going I'm to call out a name. I thank God this week that I could text a brother, Ron Bradshaw, and say, hey, I need some advice on something. Can you call me? Five minutes later, we're on the phone. I need a godly mentor. I have it. Who do you look to? Trust Jesus, immerse yourself in a church, be discipled by godly mentors. Who's looking to you? That's the other question. Here, here's the reality. God has not called us to just be sit and be infants and be nursed our whole lives, but to grow up and to mature and to disciple others. Every single one of us. No one's outside of that calling. We are all called to be disciples who make disciples. And you want to know how long that lasts? Until Jesus comes back. That's his plan, right? We want to make up all these fancy organizational charts and plans and discipleship strategies, okay? Trust Jesus, be a part of a church, be discipled, disciple other people, repeat the process until Jesus comes back, amen?